0: The actors who prosper on this show, by prosper I mean, end up having more and better material written for them because we get great results when we do it, are the crazy artists and the incredible workhorses, the people who have, a, who have such artistry that it translates not into being about themselves, but it's about having the work done.
1: You're listening to Inside Acting, a podcast dedicated to demystifying the inner and outer game of success in the entertainment industry. I'm Trevor Algott, and my co-host, AJ Meyer, will be joining us via pre-recorded magic in just a moment. Coming up in episode 200, the first episode of season 8, we bring you the unedited audio from our live-streamed Q&A panel with the creative team behind the hit sci-fi show Defiance. We recorded this panel in front of a live audience last week, and it is chock full of golden DIY nuggets. From storytelling theory, to writing tactics, to composing and scoring ideology, to creating alien languages, we covered it all in this hour and a half plus session. There's even, as you've heard, a little bit in there about acting. The video recording is up on our website and has been for about a week. But if you're on the go and you want to soak all this up audio style, it's coming at you in episode 200 right now. So stick around. Support for this episode of Inside Acting comes from Rehearsal 2, the app for actors. If you want to learn your lines, be off book for auditions, explore your character, and make stronger choices, there's a kick-ass app for that, and it's called Rehearsal 2. You can download it for yourself right now at RehearsalTheApp.com slash download. That's RehearsalTheApp.com slash download. And who else, AJ?
2: And by The Headshot Truck an all-inclusive mobile photography studio. Rain or shine, come hell or high water, the goal of the Headshot Truck is to give every individual the opportunity to produce a rock-solid set of headshots, with full support from a makeup artist, wardrobe consultant, and photographer all on board for every single shoot. The truck can also turn into an interactive photo booth, perfect for any wedding or event looking to spice things up. Visit theheadshottruck.com for more info, and follow the Headshot Truck on Twitter and Instagram at HeadshotTruck. The Headshot Truck, the best way to get shots in LA.
1: All right, everybody. Welcome to episode 200 of Inside Acting. Uh, This was a really special episode for us. Many of you know that we were over at the SAG Foundation with uh, lots of help and generosity from Dennis Baker uh, with a huge chunk of the creative team behind the hit sci-fi show Defiance. It's the number one rated sci-fi show uh, on that network right now, and it's a pretty cool show, you can get it on uh, Hulu, if you have Hulu Plus, you can watch it on there, and uh, on Amazon Prime right now as well, anyway, I don't think anybody that was there expected it to go as amazingly um, awesome as it did, it was just really like insightful, and just fun. Filled with knowledge bombs and little nuggets and so many little takeaways. Everybody that we talked to at the party afterwards was just like, oh my god, I had no idea what I was in for when I sat down for this. So uh, the hour and 40 plus minutes of audio that you're about to hear is completely unedited. And it is here in audio form for your knowledge bomb soaking up pleasure. Something like that. Uh, Before we roll into it, I want to make just a, a quick announcement that we are going to be taking next week off. So this podcast episode is going to get you through the next two weeks and we'll come at you uh, with episode 201 uh, sometime towards the end of the month. I'm looking at my calendar right now and it looks like it is the 21st that you'll have episode 201 in your feed. And I also wanted to give a quick shout out and thanks to our production coordinator, Jen Levin, and of course, AJ Meyer. When I say that they did 99.9% of the heavy lifting to make episode 200 happen and the after party as well, I am not exaggerating. They did almost everything, and those of you guys that were there know how kind of beautifully and smoothly it, it went off. So, huge thanks to them, huge thanks to our sponsors, and that about does it. I'm going to let AJ wrap up this episode on the other end of this panel, so I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks at episode 201. Enjoy.
2: It's packed. Either it's packed. It is packed. I'll bet we're sold out online, too. Yeah.
1: The link is full. Right. No one else can join. The So uh, most of you guys know um, what this is about. We have uh, the amazing, uh, a huge chunk of the amazing creative team behind the number one sci-fi rated show, Defiance. <laughs> yeah.
2: Would you guys like to let, just go down the line and introduce yourself, what you do for the show, on the show and uh, that way people will know the context of uh,
3: with which you speak?
0: Hi, I'm uh, I'm Kevin Murphy and I co-created the show and I'm executive producer and I am the uh, showrunner.
3: I'm Darren Swimmer, I'm a writer and an executive producer.
0: And-
4: I'm Paul Leonard. I'm a co-executive producer. I'm responsible for post-production on the show, from editorial to visual effects and final sound mix.
5: My name is Brendan McCreary. I am the songwriter and song producer for the show, not to be confused with my big brother Bear, who does the score. You collective sigh of disappointment. You can release that now. <laughs> Just kidding.
2: And uh, I'm A.J. Meyer, uh, recurring Season 4, which hasn't aired yet. I'm just, I'm
1: kidding. I'm <laughs> just planting seeds, guys. Planting seeds. Well played, man. Thanks. Uh, and I'm Trevor Allgod. So, thank you guys for being here. Um, we're super stoked to, to be doing this, um, and to be sitting down with you guys, because this is an opportunity, I think, for all of us, who maybe haven't had a ton of experience, um, sort of, in the inner workings of a TV show to find out what it's like, to find out what the grind looks like, what the day-to-day looks like, especially from the perspective of a showrunner and post-production and composing and, and um, song producing and like all that stuff, the right all of that. And what's really interesting about this, this show too is that there's a, it's the first show, I think, to have a video game that's a massive multiplayer online, I think I said that right, game that, that um, sort of runs in tandem with it and it actually can influence the storyline, if I'm not mistaken, and vice versa. Is that right? Uh, That is true. That was part of the conception. So epic, right? It's amazing. So very cool. Uh, So yeah, that's uh, sort of the the context of this whole night is for us to take a closer look at at what makes a TV TV show like this run. Um, So we wanted to, what we usually do with all of our guests on the show is
2: start at the beginning. um, But since the guest tonight is really your television show, we thought it'd be interesting to just hear how it came to be, what was the conception, um, how all the... Parts came together, and you know where the ideas germinated and and, and how it all got started.
0: Well, the show uh, first came about because uh, Sci-Fi, our network, uh, made a deal with uh, Tryon Worlds, which was a video, an upstart uh, video game company, and uh, they knew that they wanted to make some sort of science fiction western and it turned out that the domain name defiance.com was available for purchase, so whatever the hell it was, it was going to be named Defiance. Uh, they went through a, uh, a steady stream of uh, very talented writers, uh, upon whose uh, shoulders uh, this lot stands, uh, who came up with different ideas for the mythology. And what was interesting is this was all done concurrently with the video game creators, so as they were deciding what the alien races were going to look like and what would be cool games, there were uh, Writers Guild writers who were coming in and pitching their ideas. And there's little fragments of all of those uh, previous writers' uh, mythologies. Um, I was originally hired on the show as a consultant because I had uh, I, I had come in halfway through the uh, Battlestar Galactica prequel series, Caprica, and uh, kind of helped. Get that house somewhat. So <laughs> one clap. Thank you. Uh, somewhat, someone, uh, somewhat back in order. So they, uh, they wanted me to help the, uh, the, the guy who, uh, Rockne O'Bannon, who had written uh, the pilot script, uh, a hand getting the show up and running. And I thought it was going to be a six-week gig, three days a week. And here I am, four years later. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> long story short, uh, there was a great deal of birthing pains, because this, this being a cross-pollination uh, uh, between a video game and a TV show, You still have to make a TV show, and there were a lot of questions about what exactly was the TV show going to be, and there were some people at the network that saw it as kind of a blue skies, Eureka-style science fiction western procedural with a science fiction-themed crime of the week, and Mark Stern, who is the uh, president of the the LA side of sci-fi, saw it more as a really tough uh, serialized uh, character drama, and there was a lot of struggle In those early days trying to figure out what exactly the show was going to be at one point uh rockney parted ways with the show and the whole thing dumped in my lap and uh ultimately and and ultimately my 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 requirement for staying on to, to take over the show was i had to figure out what my version of the show was and so uh mark stern uh very uh bravely allowed me and the writing staff to Put our heads together and we completely revamped the pilot. We revamped, we created new characters in Nolan and Orissa, who if you've seen the show are you know people you, you see on the poster. And we created a very, very different show and we wrote that initial script in about a week. And all this was being done as we were uh, as we were casting and we were working with the director who had been hired and the production designer, but Nobody else had been hired, so we were figuring out where we were going to shoot the show, we were figuring out who was going to be designing the show, what the costumes were going to look like, what the aliens were going to look like, and while we were coordinating all of this, making sure it synced up with the needs of the video game. So it was, it was, it was a very crazy uh, genesis for a television show. It's, I've, never, I, I've never been involved with anything quite so complicated. It's a bit trial by fire. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. Can, can I add some color a, a bit? I would love to hear from you, Paul, actually. Oh, no, because... no. I, Kevin uh, Kevin and I, I had the good fortune of meeting Kevin on Caprica, and um, I, I believe that the script was rewritten about a month before photography had to start because we were backed into a launch date of not only the show premiering but the game premiering a week before us. So uh, there was a lot going on.
1: Wow. <laughs> No pressure. Yeah. Yeah, no pressure. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious, to, uh, be, I'm, there may be people who haven't seen the show or may not be terribly familiar with it, so right off, just before we kind of go any further, can you guys give a brief synopsis of the plot of the show? It's 35 years in the future, and there are aliens, and there's terraforming, and...
3: <laughs> you go.
1: I've done it before.
3: <laughs> You've done it before, so you're probably... <laughs> uh, well, how do I put it usually? It's 35 years in the future. It's uh, after something called Arkfall has occurred, and society as we know it has gone and been replaced with um, uh, a civilization that is aliens and humans living together in um, something that resembles, I wouldn't say harmony, but they're living together peaceably. Um, and uh, it's uh, a town uh, in, in what used to be St. Louis that is uh, struggling with all kinds of
0: problems and obstacles from week to week. Um, and, and one can the elaborate. Thing, and, and one of the things that, that makes the show a little unusual is that uh, we're all used to seeing us versus them alien invasion dramas where it's War of the Worlds and it's humans are the good guys and the aliens are the bad guys. What makes the show kind of complicated and political and makes it a mirror of the American immigrant experience is the fact that there's seven different races of aliens, many of whom despised each other, and for their mutual survival, they had to all work together to build these giant arcs to escape their system, which was, uh, which was being destroyed. And they took a, 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 a thousand-year journey to the planet Earth, and when they got here, they weren't quite expecting to find us. And so this is after there was a interplanetary war. Uh, nobody won. This is what comes next. This is about the rebuilding of society. And you learn in the show that some of the races of aliens actually have a lot more in common with human beings than they do with each other.
1: See, that is so freaking cool. I, um, <laughs> I love that stuff. I, you, said, you said it's kind of a, a mirror reflection of these sort of immigration issues. That that,
0: you- that's kind of what we were going for because uh, it was presented as a Western. So you have to figure out how do you take aliens and a Western and kind of make them all fit together. And obviously it seems that what you had in the American West was a lot of land and you had the Mexicans uh, at war with the Comanche, at war with the Apache, uh, the Chinese were coming in, everybody hated the Jews, and you had, you had wars happening uh, among people because people wanted land, people wanted resources, people wanted supremacy in this new land. And, and, this, and that, that's kind of what fueled the Wild West. And that's something that... Um, lends itself very well to the needs and the different customs of the the various alien races who have brought a little bit of their home culture to this new world with them. Music, dress, uh, cultural mores, all all that kind of stuff. Uh, Yeah,
1: I think this is really, it's really fascinating to sort of hear... The, the, the show's having like roots being in that sort of world or the very present world that we live in. Um, and I'm wondering like, what, is, is there a thesis statement? If all if all art has a thesis statement, if it all is saying something about culture and society and the way we are to behave uh, in order to survive together, what is this show saying? What is the sort of philosophical thrust
0: of it? Sort of we be? flounder apart, we succeed together. That's the show. Awesome. With aliens, <laughs> don't forget about the aliens. No, I love, it. I don't love it. It's really, really cool. I, I, I we're in space this year, <laughs> and we're in space a little bit
2: this year. Yes. yes. Season three was just aired on June twelfth, right?
0: Uh, we just premiered uh, episode four, uh, premiered this past Friday, mm-hmm. and I think you can catch up on it on uh, on Sci-Fi's website, and I know it's on iTunes yeah. and. You can probably get it on demand. I, I have no idea. I'm just talking on my. Plug hands. away.
2: Plug away. <laughs> Google.
0: <laughs> yeah. Google it. Um,
2: I do love the, the. This is kind of granular, especially this early on in the in the in the conversation. But I do love the authenticity with which you have approached the mythology, because uh, I don't know how many uh, uh, fans of the show or people who know the show well enough to know that there's actually you you've hired a linguist, and there are. F- at least four that i know of alien languages two of which are completely like you have a full blown language that you can pull from uh poor brennan has had to, had to actually translate I have intimate pop knowledge songs of all so yeah. these languages <laughs> translate pop songs and like i said it's a it's a it's a granular aspect of the show but it speaks to the authenticity with which you guys are approaching the mythology um was that always part of the plan or is that something that you decided that if we're going to do this we're going to do it right kind of thing? Uh, it
0: quickly became part of the plan because if you're going to do anything involving alien cultures, you have to have language that creates divisions and when someone comes to the new world they fall back on the languages of their old country and to me I found it very interesting that when uh, Castethon, which is one of our races, when the parents were home, they would naturally lapse into the mother tongue. And their son, even though he was fluent in their language, uh, he would prefer speaking in English. And occasionally you would have a scene where you'd have, you know, a few lines of alien jibber-jabber, and then someone would say, okay, we're in the new world, we need to be speaking English, which is sort of accepted as the common tongue in in, in this world. Um, Our languages were uh, created by uh, David uh, Peterson, who is uh, perhaps more famous for having created the uh, languages on, on Game of Thrones. He created High Valyrian and the Dothraki language. Um, and at the time, he had not yet created High Valyrian, just a couple of words. Uh, and Dothraki, because they were illiterate, there was no written version. So this was really exciting for David because he was, um, he was getting to do uh, a written version of the language as well as an oral one. And uh, we have true type fonts and everything. But you'll see if you watch the show, and as part of the set design, that there's graffiti, there's signage, and it's all in the various alien languages. And uh, there, we started off with just Arathian was was our biggest language because we used it the most. Castethan uh, quickly caught up, and then we uh, and then we had Indigene, which were they're the golf ball head aliens. And uh, this year we have a new race we've introduced, which is a, a hertifor, uh unheard of race called the Omac, and they have their own language. And David has based them in cultural customs, and I don't understand what it all is. They're, they're, like, I'll, I'll get an email from David out of the blue, and he'll go like, "Hey, uh, is it okay that uh, does it work in the mythology for there to be a red sky on on, on the planet Irath in the old in the old system?" I'm like. I don't know. Uh, let's say yes. And he's, great, great. That's that's perfect. That's perfect.
1: It's, it's more of like an Auburn color, actually. Or, or
0: we'll or we'll be we'll be writing, and we'll have a uh, we'll have a character name appear, and we're just. We're not linguists. We're just making shit up when we make up a character's name, and we'll get like an angry email from David. No, no, in the arathian tongue, that is not. That is impossibly impossible. <laughs> it has, and then he'll give us a list of six possible alternatives. Six. Um, he also get it right yeah, da- on your da- own show, Kevin. Da- David also is a uh, a very very. Uh, He's really into like games and odds and statistics, and he created our uh, our card game, which everyone plays in the bar, which is called Valley, uh, which is uh, Castathon for colonization, which gives you an idea of what dicks the Castethan race are, <laughs> because that's what they do for fun: is they, they pretend colonize their other worlds around them. Uh, and he created uh, all of the cards and the artwork and all of the and all of the rules. And there's about a hundred pages of rules. For the, uh, of all the possible card combinations, and each one of our alien languages, I have like a PDF that's about 150 pages with all the dictionary, with all the, all, the, all the language, the lexicographies, the uh, the, the orth- orthographic, is that what it is? Ortho or, uh, uh, orth- pronunciation guide and grammar guide and all of that for all of the languages, and it's it's insane nerdage. And I think he actually is uh, he he has a book coming out very soon about. Um, about the defiance language, the uh, Game of Thrones languages, and there's like phrase books at the end. So I'm I'm, I'm really excited to see
3: it. Uh, so but can I add one thing? thing sorry yeah, about uh, or What I think is, is fun about David is um, he gives these little. Uh, it's like his judging on you know the performance of actors you know based on their uh, you know not on their acting but on on how well they say the language and he'll be like oh, you know so and so. Yeah, she she did the language uh, almost as well as a native speaker, and I'm like, I do not you know what a native speaker sounds like?
2: He's hanging out with aliens when he's not hanging out with you guys. It's amazing.
4: Well, he also saw daily. He was watching dailies this season, and he called us to to let us know that one of the actors was speaking gibberish. And I thought, well, they they are speaking gibberish, just not your gibberish. But we did our best to straighten it out and loop it and put it in the correct one of the more fun alien parts? language.
3: Yeah, one of the more fun parts of this job.
0: God. I think uh, B- Brendan uh, actually has practical experience having to uh, not only speak the languages but having to figure out how to sing and
5: have Indeed. them like, lay on a melody. Uh, I have, and, I, I don't even need, you know, ordinarily, so when we're doing when we're translating a song into one of the languages, uh, I started back in season one and I, I became the full-time songwriter of season two. and. Um, I remember in season one becoming like being so infuriated that I have to l- learn how to say all this stuff. And now I don't even I just like I don't even listen to David's MP3s because he sends these he sends these um Annunciation and Pronunciation MP3s. Freddie, and can, can
0: you explain how, what we do with songs like what songs have to do with aliens?
5: Yeah, well, okay, well, that's a that's an even longer point there. So, um <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the world of defiance is really unique in a lot of different ways, as you know, we've clearly just talked about. But one of the things that makes the show also unique is the, the musical vernacular that's built into it. So obviously there's score, which my brother does. And each of these alien races has um, not just their own themes, but their specific instruments that we've either created or tailored to, to fit um, that race. And one of the things that makes the world so fascinating is how all these races of aliens and human beings have sort of created a popular musical um, world in and of itself. So Kevin is extremely passionate about music and songs, and I feel very fortunate that so many songs need to be in the show, and that's why I have a job. And um, so it takes place 35 years in the future in this post-apocalyptic world, in which electricity is difficult to come by. Um, a lot of the ways that, you know, a lot of the recorded music is gone by the wayside. Like, there's no more MP3s. There's, you know, CDs and stuff. Lasers, it's too complicated. Um, so, you know, vinyl is the primary way people listen to music. Um, one of the as main, it should be. As it should be. <laughs> as Tell it should be. Tell us how be. you really feel, Kevin. And uh, so, um, a lot of times these alien races have sort of appropriated earth music and mixed it with their own. And so very frequently I find myself having to um, concoct a song through not just in an alien language but also having perceived it through what that particular alien who wrote the song in the show would have interpreted, you know, it's it's, it's like super meta because I'm writing the song but I'm actually writing a song that an alien wrote in the world, and how they would sort of mix, like say, you know, 90's earth rock with what the, the instruments they might have used back home or whatever, so it's this incredible sort of uh, mashup of all these different types of influences, both from our real world um, in reality and in the show, and from these different alien cultures, so I think I answered your question, but getting back to it, you know, I, I started singing in Aratian, and then I had to start teaching singers how to sing in Aratian when they'd come to the studio and stuff. And now I don't, I don't even need to listen to David's uh, samples. I just, it's like, I know it's a Rathian, so I know how to do it. And I just, you know, sing it and it sounds great. And then David always, David always gives me good marks. I, I'm proud.
4: Now, Brendan, I, something I don't quite know is the lyrics sometimes for the original songs are written by Kevin and sometimes are written by you. Correct. But when David translates them, you have to figure out what meter to put the song in and how to make all True. those syllables fit into some kind of True. melody. True. Yes, yeah, so, so there's like a negotiation sometimes, I'm copied on emails, and it's yeah. like, oh, Brendan's <laughs> on top of it, that's great.
5: <laughs> yeah, so the translations come in um, from David, and he puts in parentheses like which syllables we can sort of get rid of to, to fit um, in, the, in the meter. A lot of times, you know, saying a simple phrase in English turns into something extremely convoluted in Arathian, or Castathin, or Indigene, or, or Omic, and 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 I'll do my best. A lot of times I just willy nilly just pull out syllables until they sound good, and and I'll, I'll even send David an email, be like, hey, I had to sort of fudge it, and he's just usually so excited to hear his language in song that he doesn't care. <laughs> so I get off like with this gold card every time, cause you know I pronounce it good, and even though I just take stuff out, he's like, oh, it sounds so cool in a song. The big the biggest success this experiment not success necessarily this season we i really wanted to do a rap song in season two and i couldn't i didn't i didn't get to pull it off and then in season three um in episode one um the scene where the lady's like powering the turntable on the bicycle uh, we decided to do an erathia hip-hop song which was awesome epic
3: so where's the I, I don't even commitment. know how to like there, yeah.
5: There is a yeah. season two. Season two soundtrack. is available right now on Amazon, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you want to listen. It's called Songs of Define Season Two. It's 22 songs. I either wrote them or produced almost all of them. There's only one song on there that I didn't have my my fingers in the pie. It's really awesome. You should check it out. I'd really appreciate it. Is the uh, is the
2: one we were talking about earlier on that CD? So this is one of my favorite. This is one of my favorite stories. Yes, it is. Yeah, so So, for longtime listeners of the show know the reason that I know uh, Mr. Murphy here is because we spent a lot of time in a theater together in New York uh, working on Heather's the Musical. Uh, One of the... Oh, come on. That can't get a bigger applause. That can't get a bigger applause than Caprica. Come on. (laughs) There's like one person in the back. Caprica! Heather's the Musical. Everybody claps. Uh, (laughs) That's hilarious. So... um, one of the one of the fan favorite songs from from the show, probably one of the the best songs from the show, is this uh, song called "Dead Girl Walking," and is it it's in, it must be in season two. Uh, in season two, they had one of the aliens sing it, and therefore translated it into Arathian. So Larry O'Keefe actually came in and worked with. We were just talking about this in the holding because I got a chance to meet Brandon after hearing you. I think played. Us the dailies or something in the rehearsal room or, or something at at one point.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, what what happened is we were uh, we were actually in the process of uh, doing post production on. Uh, actually, no, we we were still shooting season two while we were going through the the whole Heather's experience. So I was splitting my time between the TV show and the stage show, and just because I had Heather's on the brain, I just started. Uh, Packing all of these Heather's the musical things into the TV show. So if you actually watch season two, um, you'll notice that every now and then there is a quote from the original Heather's movie as an Easter egg. Uh, If you uh, if if you watch with a freeze frame, you will occasionally see the key art for the Heather's musical will appear in visual. In every
5: single shot. Yeah, every single one.
0: It's like a fantastic drinking game.
2: It's it's on it's on billboards of like broken down movie theaters and and that kind of thing.
0: and then the other thing we did was we took one of the songs and we decided to have a grand experiment of having uh, Brendan uh, cover it for us. And he covered it in Arathian. And the idea here was that uh who is our disc jockey, who has a, up until last week, you know, from the top of the Archie broadcast. Spoiler um, alert. Uh, spoiler, spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, and. Uh, he would find old songs and he would re-record them and he would press his own records. So there's this very uh, lively independent music scene in Defiance and because these people don't have any cultural context for a song and for them Lady Gaga can sound as profound as Leonard Cohen. And a Broadway musical doesn't really mean anything because there are no Broadway theaters anymore. So people are just, so the so the alien cultures are just listening to the rhythm, they're listening to uh, you know the lyrics and what responds to them. And there was this, this uh, the, the girl that was her favorite song, who was the, the lady disc jockey, was she doesn't really understand any of the stuff in, in the lyrics, but she understands, I'm a dead girl walking. Yeah, that's kind of fierce and badass. I like that. And she responded to that as an alien complete, with no awareness that, Anyone who was cool would probably not be listening to a show tune. Uh, show so, tunes are awesome, Kevin. Hey. So, we, so we we, hand, we handed our, our Broadway version sheet music to Brendan and said, "Okay, make something cool and awesome and badass out of it." And,
5: and we did, and it was easily the most difficult song of the entire season two soundtrack. Both to kind of absorb, retranslate um, both in language and because um, you know it's a show tune. It's got the horns and the orchestra and the singing and the you know. And then I I sort of devolved it into this like electro pop, really like hard aggressive like electro thing. And uh, it was the whole tune. It was like all five. It's like a four and a half. It's minutes, whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was an ex- it was extremely challenging. And the in- it usually you know especially on an original tune i'll try to make it easy on david have lots of like repeat lyrics and stuff so he doesn't have to translate this is just like three pages of lyrics all of which was translated i my my poor singer who handled it so amazingly uh she came in really prepared i'd sent her all the mp3s and stuff but she just she had her work cut out for we were there for like hours and hours just getting the pronunciations correct and stuff but it turned out great it's like track eight on the record okay so it is on there it is absolutely it is.
0: yeah it's on there so the, you you can go if you got spotify you can listen to both songs back to back for free and hear the and hear the difference the one uh the heathers the heathers cast album is on spotify some of the tracks and uh, yeah and so is the songs of defiance jeez <laughs> uh, i mean I, I gotta say i mean i've you know I've, I've seen the show and and i've always
1: sort of loved that the languages are so full and and but i, I never thought about how much freaking work Goes into all this stuff, and when I heard the songs, like in the bar and stuff, I'm like, "Oh, that's cool. The song is in one of the language. That's really cool." Never thought more about it more than that. Just to hear that there's this much attention to detail that goes into it, and this much sort of um, energy that it's, that's so cool. Yeah, I just think that's amazing. Wow. All right, I just had a moment. Um, cool. So I, I want to. I don't know. Anything else you want to talk about on the music front? I was not expecting that rabbit hole to go so deep. So I know. Like seriously, <laughs> uh, so that was amazing. I, I, I want to kind of shift the gears to the writing a little bit um, because I imagine with a show like this, so much of it is just like, like you said, like, oh, well, what if the sky was red? Cool. But also I imagine that there's a lot of sort of, I mean, there's got to be like a very strict set of historical rules within this sort of worlds that you, that you adhere to, and I'm sure that even within that there are storytelling mechanisms that you employ, or maybe not, um, to, to loop the audience into the world. So I guess my question is what, what, what is the process like when you start brainstorming a season and when you get down to the nitty gritty of the plot lines and things? Can you tell us a little bit about like how you approach it from the sort of 30,000 foot view down to the, the more day to day stuff?
0: Sure, I'll, I'll start and then I'll hand off to you. Uh, let me take for example, the season that we're in right now, season three. Um, at the end of season two, Uh, We aired our episodes, and we were uh, invited, if we wanted a season three, we had to give some indication of what that season three would entail. So I got kind of a skeleton crew of my writers, uh, and our writer's assistant, which which included Darren, and I uh, very generously bought everyone pizza. Uh, (laughs) And we hung out for a day, and we just did kind of like a writer's camp in my living room, uh, where we talked about what would we like to see, and, and we, we, we talked about the new race of aliens, and we talked just very, very broad, broad strokes about what we would do. We had the idea, well, let's let's do something really big, and and, and, uh, and we talked about, um, we, we killed off a whole passel of major characters in the season premiere this year, and that's where that idea uh originated and just kind of talked about what we what we think would be cool and kind of what would be the first thing that would happen what would be like two or three interesting touchstones in the middle and then where it would end up and then we wrote that up and i went in and i pitched it to sci-fi and hooray they picked up the show uh so then we assembled the writing staff we we brought back many of our writers from the previous season we brought in some uh, some new writers and the world was open before us, and the writer 's room open why don 't you kind of walk us through day one of the writer 's room uh,
3: well the first the first few weeks are they're in, in a way they 're daunting, but I think uh, for me they 're my favorite part of the process because we get to do this the sky the blue sky, what can we call the blue skies the sky is blue. We can come up with all kinds of crazy ideas and all of those are valid for you know at least a couple days until they don't work at all. Um, and there's I don't know it was like two, three weeks and we'll we'll plot out a, a whole season arc and usually there's a, a a little bit of that what we'd come up with left throughout the season it, it, but it will change and we know it's gonna change um, but we will continually sort of put little you know. Cards or Post-it notes that are have become really rare because I don't know why 3M decided not to make them anymore. But these big Post-it notes, we put them up on the wall, and they get replaced and replaced and replaced until we have sort of a whole season. And um, we will change our minds, and we'll you know sometimes Kevin will go off and do something else you know related to the show, and the the writers just sort of go down a path and bring Kevin in, and he'll say yeah, what about this? And um, it usually is incredibly fruitful because we have all these uh, returning writers mixed in with a couple of new writers and um, it's a fertile period and I just find that so much gets done in that period of time Um, and the creation of the new uh, characters of the season there, there's a character this season named Ram Talk, who the, I'm, just, I'm just remembering how, how he, he came about
0: in that period of time. And it was Played really by fun. the amazing Lee yeah. yeah. Tobias Beecher and Oz. It's and, and of Africa, friend. And a couple <laughs> of new aliens with, with,
3: with funny names. Um, but yeah, so in, in that period of time, um, we'll come up with um, what will be then a presentation for the network. And what what we're basically doing on the wall
0: is, if you can imagine, I'm going to try doing this right to left so it's the right for you guys. Uh, 13 columns for 13 episodes, each is an episode number, and then uh, vertically each major character's name. And then that creates a grid. And then in each grid, we try to figure out, okay, we know that uh, Nolan, our hero, is going to leave town to go buy gro- I don't want to do any spoilers. Leave town to go buy groceries. Yeah, that should happen in episode 7. Okay. Uh, and this character is going to pull a hangnail out. So that that sounds like something for episode 3. So, oh, and that's going to affect her husband because he's going to help her pull the hangnail out. So, okay, so that's what he's doing in that episode. And then over time, you're like, ah, you know what? No, no, we we, we got we to shop for groceries much earlier. That's 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 episode 5. And so as you come up with new ideas, you're the reason you do it on cards and post-its is because your thing that's on the wall is, becomes a living document, and it becomes like, sort of like a tactile like, Excel sheet. And over time, you, you, you slowly begin to uh, understand what the shape of, 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 of the season is and what everybody's arc is character-wise and how the various characters intersect with each other. And then it comes time for the pitch, and that's where uh, Darren and, and his, his, his partner, uh, Todd, who is a crazy pitch monster, comes in. Yeah, so, um, and during this period of
3: time, it's it's an interesting blend because we'll have what we feel are the sort of emotional through points and the maturity of the show and how the characters are changing, but then there's also what are the needs of the network, what are they looking for, and of course those are important to us. And so there's all these different facets that are coming into play, and um, and... We will then pitch to the network and get their feedback and then of course there's this there's this little thing called budget that um, you know you have to kind of work around a little bit and then you go off and start writing scripts and you know for from that point um, it becomes uh sort of a week to week process um, of breaking stories uh coming up with um you know, plot ideas. Then going um, more and more granular, um, bringing Kevin in, seeing what his opinions are of them. You know, Kevin will come in and and um, uh, you know he'll go really granular with his opinions or go really broad with his opinions. And um, you know the 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 group of writers in the writing room in the writers room will you know continue to plug away and plug away till we send a writer out on um, an outline or a script and um, we just continue to do that 12 or 13 more times and you have a season.
0: Yeah, but one of the things just just in terms of uh, like how my job uh, differs from, from Darren's job even though obviously there's gigantic intersection is I'm responsible for many, directly responsible for many, many, many moving parts. So during this period of time, I'm kind of jackrabbit, rabbiting in and out of the writers' room, and Todd and Darren are a constant presence, and they're running the writers' room because I'm dealing with casting, I'm dealing with working on a pitch, I'm dealing with, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm dealing, I'm dealing with various network needs, I'm dealing with what what's going on with set design, I'm dealing with costumes, I'm dealing with all kinds of, and once we get actually shooting, I'm dealing with. Uh, production rewrites, I'm dealing with there's an emergency on set, uh, an actor doesn't want to say their lines. (laughs) I'm dealing with... uh, Who was that? You can imagine. (laughs) I'm dealing with uh, going into cuts. I'm dealing with, oh, we just got network notes on this. Okay, well, let me have a conversation with this, that, and the other thing, because uh, the weird thing about being a showrunner is you usually get it by being a writer, and you kind of sit around in your underpants at home, and you write your dream script, And somebody says, okay, we're going to make the script because we think you're such a great person who sits around in their underwear and writes. And they say, and your reward for being so good at what you do is we're going to give you a totally different job. We're going to make you the CEO of a small business that has a $2 million weekly cash flow and you're going to have to hire people and fire people and charm people and politic people and do all these things that nobody who sits in their underwear in front of their computer is really emotionally, uh, a <laughs> <laughs> quick qualified to do often, and uh, good luck to you. And by the way, you're on the air in four months, so that, that's that, that's kind of what 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 my job is, and and the job for 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 Darren and Todd is to get the best work out of the writers and maintain a constant presence. And when we hear from the network, all right, let's talk to the network. And they just got their testing in. And you know, yeah, you know how they said uh, three, three weeks ago that we wanna, they want to really like uh, do more uh, female-driven stories? Well, the testing says they want more shooting and Nolan punching people in the face, so it needs to be more male-oriented. Okay, fine, let's do that. Nolan punches the person in. <laughs> and then all the cards change. <laughs>
2: And you're there for just as long as you were when you put the yeah. cards there in the first place. Uh, there's a documentary I watched recently on Netflix called Showrunner. Have you seen it? I have not. You should watch but it. But I don't get out <laughs> You can sit in your underwear in front of your TV and, there you go. and watch it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should. It's, it's really fascinating. And I made sure to watch it before doing this because I wanted some inkling of uh, what you do on a day-to-day basis. Um, and it sounds as terrifying as you described it, so uh, good on you. You brought up the big bad P word of pitch, and we did have a couple of uh, questions come in on our Twitter or Facebook Uh, a couple of days ago. Someone, uh, one person in particular, Michael, asked, what what do you need? Now, you guys are pitching mid-show. It's not like you're pitching an original idea, and at this point, you're pitching a new season or you're pitching an episode to the network, but since you've... You're obviously good at it. People are paying you to uh, to make the things that you're pitching He asked what do you need? What is the basically the tips of of going into a pitch room and what 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 are the what's the network looking for other than the in addition to the idea
0: itself? I I, I mean, I think there's there's many many different ways to answer that question. I would say the most important thing is a pitch is a form of communication when you really boil it down to its essence. And I think that your job is to make the people who are potential buyers for your idea, make them understand why this is an idea that is worth putting time, money, and resources into. And that might be because you've got this one amazing character that you need to talk about. It's because, oh, she's a girl, and her name is Allie McBeal, and you've never met a girl like this before, blah, 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 and then, yeah, then there's some lawyer shit that happens. That's one way of pitching. Or it may be, oh, this is this is about a family and this is about uh and, and they're and, and they're in the mob, but their their, their, the rise and fall of their family roughly parallels the immigrant experience in america and they're called the corleones and it's all about the patriarch and then as we move into later in the story we, we go back in time and we meet the we meet the patriarch who was our hero in the first movie he becomes he becomes a young man and we learn more about who made him what he is but we then watch what becomes of his son and it becomes about sort of the macro big picture and it's not one central character uh it could be yeah, we're doing uh, Firefly, and it's going to be a reimagining of the classic western, and we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to have like cool western music, and there's a great thing of style, and, and, and bringing the fun back into science fiction. It, it's it's whatever the essence is of the show that you're doing, that's what you have to convey. And I think as 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 the pitcher, my advice would be think about what's really special about your idea and lead with that because that's the thing that they want to hear and and I think that it's not true that there's one, that there's one template that works for all pitches because I think every show is different and unique and special and the way you pitch it needs to be adjusted accordingly.
3: If I could could add one thing to that. Um, My writing partner is a really fantastic pitch, pitch man. He's Um, a freak of nature, he's he's awesome. (laughs) So it it frees me up to not have to to do quite as much pitching but... um, you know, one thing that he's really good at, and and I think um, I, when I hear pitches, it's the first thing that I look for in somebody is you have to have passion for what you're pitching. Um, And false passion is actually the worst thing in the world because it's like salesmanship. Um, But you have to believe this is when, you know, when Todd is pitching an episode of Defiance, it's episode seven of Defiance, he, while he's pitching it, believes it's the best episode of Defiance we've ever written. And that's coming across to the person hearing it. So it's just, it's in the inflection of the voice, it's in the way he's looking at the person or you know, talking to them on the speakerphone or whatever. So whatever you can do to just bring that to the room when you're pitching, I think is really important. Wow, yeah. Uh, and False on- passion
2: equals salesmanship. Is that a knowledge bomb?
1: Uh, maybe worded a little differently. That's what he
2: said. Right, or no, did I mess it up?
1: I don't know.
3: <laughs>
1: I wasn't listening. No. Uh, I, I, it's on, the, on the concept of pitching, um, a question that we talked about beforehand about a week or two ago was, you know, we've got all this content now coming up from you know, Yahoo Screen and Hulu and Amazon and Netflix. And in those spaces, the people that, that we've talked to even on the podcast have said that they they experience a lot more sort of creative freedom when it comes to crafting their pitches, when it comes to how much control they have over their show and things like that. And we both were kind of wondering, without incriminating anybody, what experience, what what is your experience working with a major network like Sci-Fi in where you can go with the themes and whatnot in the show? Are, do have you ever had to curb anything, or are you allow, are you pushed in a certain direction? Does that
2: ever happen? I also have a part B to that, which is how would the show be different if you were on like a uh, an NBC or a CBS or a ABC? Yeah. You know, what what decisions can and can't you make uh, because of where you're at?
0: Basic cable uh, is a lovely place to be. Uh, very often, not as many people watch your television show as you know. Like you know, a few years ago, I, I worked on Desperate Housewives, and a great deal. Uh, of, of people uh, watched that show, uh, but there was a lot more input from the network and the studio and from the larger uh, corporate structures. And when we would do things that would be a little on edge, like having, um, you know, uh, Bree's uh, son, Andrew, smoke marijuana, there was a lot of Back and forth about okay, well, can we ever see him inhale? Can we see him exhale? Uh, can we have a shot of the joint in the in the in the, in the dish? And it, it would just it would it was very exhausting, and it's part of the process because enough people are watching that show. It was a huge asset to uh, to ABC Studios and to Disney, you know, television as as a whole. So yes, because a lot of people are watching it, you've got a lot of restrictions and a lot of things. I'm sure that uh, you know when they're when they're. Everything that's going on in the Marvel Cinematic Universe—I'm sure there's a lot of restrictions and red flags and places you can and cannot go—and um, that's because it's very, very popular on a basic cable show. Uh, you know, and I'll just—I'll just talk about our shows. It's—it's a—you know—it's a lot. It's more people in this room. A lot of people watch the show, but it's not by network standards. Not a lot of people watch the show, so that means that we want to do something that's edgy. Or, or that really is, is sort of like pushing pushing a boundary, then it becomes a conversation about well if you're going to do that, uh, you're going to have to take a minute of running time out because we're going to have to make it TV MA instead of TV 14, and we have to, and we're obligated by network policy to have a uh, a five second advisory warning, you know before every commercial break, and we're like all right I can do that that's fine, uh, so so you, you do have a lot more freedom, and I think that certainly uh, on a network like Sci-Fi they they want to Be noticed. They want to attract attention. They want to make noise. So when you do things that would be crazy, or or maybe like a third rail on any other show, uh, sci-fi gets up and cheers. When you want to kill a major character, they're like, "Yeah, bring it on. Who else can you kill?" Uh, We love love
1: Americans. A bunch of
0: bloodthirsty bastards. <laughs> Why Paul, did you just you, look at Paul
2: I for so I, long? I, I, was just, I was looking at Paul. You can't see me through Kevin. I think I'm still I, I mean,
3: do, do you get any, uh, you know, thing in post where you Well, like,
4: Standards and Practice sees a cut of the show, and they send Kevin and I emails about, um, uh, first they read the script and flag some language that they may want to filter it a bit. Mostly erasing, the right? They'll see a, they'll see a cut, and sometimes we have to paint some things out, things like that. We, we also, on this show,
0: occasionally, uh, we we will do absolutely filthy, filthy, filthy. You could never kiss your mother with your mouth again. Language, uh, but we put it into one of the alien tongues. I knew it, I knew and it. we just don't translate it. Brilliant. So the actor acts it, and you get all the wonderful passion of it, and then. We, on social media, we tell everyone what they were really saying. <laughs> That's epic. Brilliant.
2: I, I'm in, I, I don't know why that, that, more than anything, tonight has inspired me to write something. Yeah. I just, like, rail against something I'm really upset about, but no one will know.
1: I know. Afterwards, I'm going to be like, so how do you say... In Arathian. <laughs> Next jerk I come across is going to get an earful of That's Arathian. Hilarious. Um, oh.
2: I. Go for it. Oh. Yes. No, literate. Promise? Yes. Um I did, since we were just talking to Paul, I wanted to bring up something that, that we actually uh, talked about with regards to Post, because um, you're one of the EPs, but your focus is mostly on the post-production, like I think Kevin called you the post-production, yeah, the no, lord I, of post-production. The Jesus was, of Post. There you go. <laughs> the Jesus of Post on Defiance. That's what he asked us to call him. Oh, come on. <laughs> it's, in his, it's in his contract. <laughs>
4: That's why you're wearing that robe when you came in. Yeah, right. Kevin has been very generous with this title of co-executive producer. I've been freelance post-production, unbelievably, on Sci-Fi Channel product for 20 years. Wow. Um, uh, chiefly among sorry. them... Sorry. Yeah, no. It's, you know, I, I stayed too long on sliders, and I became the hour-long visual effects guy. And uh, I've had a couple opportunities to leave, and the truth is uh, it's kind of a devil-you-know scenario. It, it, people have, have s- circulated around me at the network for a long time and uh, they trust me to get the job done and sometimes they deploy me to difficult shows that are up against really intense air dates. Uh, but in this particular case I was eager to work with Kevin again. Battlestar Galactic I worked on for five years plus Blood and Chrome. and. Um, Kevin, uh, what's unusual about Post on this show is that uh, Kevin's very democratic. He has this boyish enthusiasm, which I think you picked up on. And he's open to suggestions and better ideas. So you might find yourself in Post with an episode that has 5 to 12 or 13 minutes too many in it. And as far as eliminating and consolidating ideas, and sometimes there's a scene that might work better in another episode, or you know, you get into a green screen sequence with a virtual set. We were going through this on our finale for season three. It's like, what's happening in this room? What should happen in this room? What's smarter that could happen in this room? So there's a lot, there's, a, there's, there's an opportunity for some rewriting. And I'm not necessarily the most vocal in that arena by, by far measure, but we encourage people to talk. And come up with ideas, and either Kevin embraces it or he feels challenged, and he it forces him to come up with something better or defend his position. But it's very organic all the way through the mix and the final delivery of the show.
2: That's awesome. I w- w- the thing that we were um, curious about also is, well, you've worked on a lot of sci-fi shows, and you've and sci-fi shows obviously, science fiction shows in general, not just shows on the Sci-Fi Network offer up a challenge when it comes to post because you're usually making aliens or spaceships or you know the 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 things the terraforming that you see on on defiance the thing that struck me about defiance that I wanted to ask you about was because it takes place 35 years in in the future but sort of the earth ends in like 2013 it's a sci-fi show that almost is a period piece and 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 usually a period piece whether it's a film or a, a television show first of all increases the budget immensely second of all is very challenging to make happen so from your point of view having worked on all these various science fiction shows what specific challenges does that actually present the fact that you have you know these futuristic elements of the alien races and their their technology and all of that but also pushing the pause button on a war-torn you know, 2013 United States?
4: Well, one of the, one of the most fun uh, steps in the process of getting a show completed is a sound and music spotting, where we get Brendan and Bear and the music editor and our sound editorial crew from Anifex and we all sit in a room and spend two to three hours per episode watching a locked picture and discussing ideas about that kind of thing. You know, what kind of textures can we layer in the background? What can we comment on? You know what can we do with the music or an environment or something that distinguishes it, and again, really gets granular about the detail and the origins of this world. So, it's um, again, I'm I'm happy to play host and referee at times, but that's uh, um, it's it's a, it's a it's a very big canvas that that we find opportunities to constantly explore, and uh, and there's a lot of folks involved.
0: We 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 also we, we do a similar uh, we do that with. Uh, music and sound spotting we also do a very similar meeting for uh, visual effects spotting where we look at the amount of visual effects that we originally committed to back when we were producing the episode then we look at the monstrosity that's been unleashed as we've been doing our various cuts of the episode and then we figure out okay how are we actually going to accomplish this and for our virtual sets it's the actors are you know as, as Paul said are kind of running around in green and the universe around them could be almost anything and the question is, what do we really want that to look like? And that becomes part, you know, that becomes an artistic statement that's made by the visual effects team. Moving backwards to production, similar things are happening when we have an actual uh, a terrestrial set. Those are being designed, and those are being color coordinated with everybody's costume. And every everyone is working on what is the look of the town. And part of the the great thing about, that makes it feel like a period piece is the fact that there's a lot of junk in defiance. It's a lot of stuff that used to be useful in our world and now it's been repurposed to something completely different. Like one of my favorite things on our set, which is this huge back lot uh, about the size of a football field in in Toronto where we shoot, is someone took uh, half a cab from a big uh, 18 wheel uh, rig, a truck, and they took it on a crane and they mounted the front of this truck on the second floor of a building and turned it into a little like coffee nook where whoever lives in the house can kind of sit there at the dashboard of the big rig with their you know, teacup and look out on, with a great view of the town and that's kind of like their, 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 their awesome penthouse apartment. And there's no explanation how that got there but the fact that that damn truck is there is why this is like my favorite set on any show I've ever done.
4: I, I do want to comment a little bit on visual effects and that we have... Um Uh, We have kind of an embarrassment of riches, Gary Hutzel and Mike Gibson run an in-house visual effects department that it's a team that they pulled together season two of Battlestar. And um, right now I believe we have about 34 artists working uh, to seven days a week to get the show finished this season and get episode 13 on the air when it's supposed to air. And um, there's a lot of invention there. So it starts again with scripted ideas and uh, production design sketches and it turns into this longer dialogue. (laughs) about visual effects and what should go in the show. And then Gary, the supervisor, takes those marching orders back to his artist. And the reason that every year people drop their jobs and come back to work for Gary is that they all uh, they all get into it. They all, you know, bring in their own ideas and said, well, hey boss, what if we did this instead? So Gary might bring a slightly tweaked version of an idea back to Kevin and myself and say, what about this instead? And so there's, there's a lot of passionate artists who are kind of looking to um, up their game and, again, explore the world. So uh, it's really cool. And that turns into sometimes battle scenes with uh, with machines that we couldn't have imagined or engineered, but an artist took the time perhaps on the weekends to design some kind of walking tank machine that looks so badass. And um, again, if it weren't Kevin, it might be a writer who's a little more dogmatic and say, no, that's not. That 's not what we uh, considered when we wrote the script Kevin's like cool more more great shit for my show so it brings out enthusiasm from everybody
1: I love that it was so cool to me too is just to, to hear how much it boils down to the people you work with yeah. and each person being counted on to express their own individual creativity and bring their original ideas to the table and just play just kind of like improvise and see what see what's going to come up and on that note the, the Kind of final question I wanted to ask before I think we turn it over to some listener questions, or some viewer audience listener questions. Sorry, got in autopilot there. Um, is what do you guys value in the actors that you work with? I imagine that there are some horror stories, but there's also probably some like, oh god, every time we need a difficult job done, that is the person we go to. So what, what are some of the common themes that you find are, um,
0: among the really the, the, wonderful the, people. The actors who prosper on this show and by prosper, I mean end up having more and better material written for them because we get great results when we do it, are the crazy artists and the incredible workhorses, the people who have, a, who have such artistry that it translates not into being about themselves, but it's about having the work done. The artists who come in and they spend the extra four or five hours a week it takes to memorize all of their uh, all of their lines in in an, in an alien made up language. The people who are sufficient artists to come in at three in the morning and get caked into latex and. To, to have to stand there and get their most intimate places you know shaved and plucked as they're having like white makeup put in, in you know you know but you know put on them by like three different people at once at different parts of their bodies and they do it because they want it to look really really good and those those people have you know the people who go out you know the actors who go out and sit in the snow and in our, in our premiere us, Stephanie Leonidas and Grant Boulder who are are, are to uh, you know two, two of our on, the, on on the poster there um, it was it was one of the coldest, snowiest, most miserable days in Toronto. Um, it was our our first day of shooting. It was the day after the Super Bowl, and in Toronto they had what they were calling the Super Bowl storm, and we shot in this raging, insane blizzard. And our entire crew was freezing. I showed up on set in my warmest jacket that I have here, and immediately they went, "Oh, you're underdressed," and they like held me down and like put a big monster, you know, comedy South Park parka on me, <laughs> and uh, and I, I watched. Grant and Stephanie having to lie in the snow and in the scene, they, were, they basically had been knocked unconscious and they were left in the snow to die. And so they're sitting there. Not only are they lying in the snow with costumes that are like water resistant, not actually waterproof. It was okay the first time, but once they warmed, then everything was wet. Then they had to lie there in the snow quietly while the Greens crew came in and took big uh, milk crates full of snow and dumped the snow on top of them. And as they were doing this, you can hear on their mics, you can hear Grant Bowler and Stephanie going like, oh, oh,
5: fuck you all. I hope you all die of herpes. Oh,
0: Jesus. And then, and then, okay, rolling. And and then they go dead still. Action. They sit there. They sit there. And Grant, you're, and then they pop up, and they wake up, and they do their scenes. And I, I just look at that, and it's like, I, it beggars the imagination because I just I, I, I don 't have that much like discipline that I could ever be able to do that, and the thing is it's it's artistry, but it's artistry that converts into hard, hard, hard work, and those are the people on the show that uh, that survive, and a lot of them are people who are you know who are uh, accomplished stage actors, uh, people who have who really, really know what it is to do a lot of work, people who come to set prepared because we, we put a, for the money they spend on the show, they, they spend a decent amount of money on the show, but the show we're making is a lot more ambitious than what we're paying for and it's because we operate on like maximum efficiency and that's like all of our crews. You know, we don't, you know, we don't go to the gap and and, and, and buy and, and buy outfits you know we don't have shoppers we have a leather master I've never actually done a show that has a leather master which is I guess what they call them but uh, he comes in and hes he's from he's from uh, you know French Canada and he's very very stern fellow and he does all of our leather for our you know for for, for our various costumes uh, everything is made by hand everything is and 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 it's, it is this amazing confederacy of really really dedicated workaholic artists and and that's, wow. that's for me, that's, that's, that's what, that's what works on the show. Awesome.
2: Anybody else want to chime in on that same question?
0: I just want to say that. I'm actually
2: interested in hearing from you, Brendan, because you have people that come in and, and, and sing for you on top that's of. That's true. That's true. You're trying true. to get a very specific type of performance out of an actor.
5: Yeah. I mean, I actually have had the privilege of working with actors on the show, um, starting in season three, actually, um and uh i don't know if i don't think i'm going to be spoiling anything but you know certain i I went in to to train some of these actors to produce them to singing and none of whom were actual singers um and the thing that i always find so amazing about actors I, i i i envy actors less than musicians when when i always find that i think to myself what's the hardest art form and being a musician is pretty, pretty tough. It's one of the most expensive hobbies slash professions there is in the whole world. But I, I I would take it over, which I am a musician, but I would take it over being an actor any day. It is so hard to put yourself on the line, not not just even when the red light is on and you're in front of the camera, but, but even the auditioning process, even before the auditioning process, like what you have to do to get to the auditioning process is so hard. And then... To 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 focus on your craft, to to be that person in front of the camera, and then have some kid be like, okay, now sing this song. Uh, it really, especially singing is 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 interesting because singing brings out uh, insecurity in people in ways that I, very few other things do. Um, I think everyone loves music. Everyone loves. Um, singing in the shower, in the car, but when, when it went in front of other people, it's like, even me, I'm a professional singer, like, I freak out, you know, you have to go through this. And uh, I worked with three or four actors thus far this season, all of whom just, you know, put their insecurities in, in the closet, and closed the door, and did fantastic performances. Um, I think some of it was in English, also, some of it was also not in English, which is also just a whole other level of of crazy when it's like you're asking somebody to sing possibly for the first time uh, on national television and then to do it in this you know ridiculous alien language which they have no idea how to speak. But I did want to also just add that um, as far as TV shows are concerned, this is the, the the leather master, the costume designer. They're they're my favorite people on this show in particular. Just amazing, amazing costumes on on Defiance.
4: I just want to add that a, a significant portion of my job is also directing ADR and directing the, the principal cast and supporting cast in ADR. And again, that's a, that's a trap that I've fallen into for the last 20 years. And it's, it's, it's um, understandable when someone comes in with some insecurities about why do I have to re-record this because I'll never be quite what I was on the day when I was acting opposite my co-star and I was in costume and wardrobe. But oftentimes, especially on a a science fiction show, it becomes about the rules, or it becomes about addressing a network note, it becomes about rewriting some dialogue off camera. And it's, you know, my favorite actors, I mean, I'm there for all of them. And and, and, and inevitably, on every show I've worked on, there's some folks who need a little extra coaxing. And, um, you know, you have to think of the whole. You have to think of the show and the universe and what it is we're trying to do, not your particular performance on the day. Once you get over that you know, then we work on it and we work on it and sometimes you shoot 5 or 20 or 30 takes until everyone's happy and we think we have what we need and then we move on. But um, that, is, that is a challenge for sure.
2: Paul, since you have the mic right now, we actually have a question that's come in from YouTube from Mediocre Films, um, specifically for you. How can actors make your job easier in post-production?
4: How can actors make their jobs
2: make easier? your job your job easier in in, in posts? Is there anything that they can do in terms of
4: they can their speak clearly into their microphone?
2: <laughs> you heard it here I'll first.
4: Be, I mean, you know, I mean, I've again, I've I've, I've no, worked. No, God on, bless that answer. That's me. I've, I've worked on shows with actors who are like, no, no, I don't want to play to the microphone. It's not natural. I'm just gonna. It's like, what was that? What did you say? And, uh, and and inevitably, you know, we're gonna be on the mix stage trying to decipher what someone's saying. And and so speaking English this time. Exactly. <laughs>
2: Not and a, and a so
4: you know, um, you don't ha- you know, it doesn't have to be artificial, but there just has to be some enunciation and some knowledge of where the microphone is and what it is you're doing, or an understanding that you're going to be asked to re-record that later. Oh, to be fair, sometimes they have like a mouthpiece. That's and true. Thing. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. They, yeah. False teeth. Yeah, yeah. There's prosthetics and all kinds of things that happen in our show, but um, you know, th- th- there is an acting style that that I certainly became aware of. Uh, you know. Uh, post X-Files where there was a kind of a mumbling and a whispering and an ad libby thing that went on. And um, it's difficult because inevitably someone's going to say, what in the world are they saying? Mm-hmm. And um, I've, I've had situations, not on this show, but other shows where I've had to revoice parts because actors didn't want to come in and say five or ten lines of ADR. And I said, well, we're going to revoice your part because that's how bad badly we need to understand what your character's saying.
0: I think there, there is sort of a, a hidden... Uh Baseline skill that's required for being on camera That makes some actors more successful at it than others about knowing kind of Where being aware of through your peripheral vision of where the camera is having an idea of what where you look good? And what you convey from every possible angle knowing instinctively I feel the light and I don't have to look for the light I've got very good spatial awareness and I don't have to look down because you know you kind of laugh when an actor's doing this, is they're looking to find their mark, mm-hmm. which is the tape on the ground, mm-hmm. and an actor who sort of naturally can sort of memorize how many steps it is without thinking about it and acting at the same time is very helpful, and I think along with what Paul's saying is if you want to convey don't being able to do that in a loud enough voice that it creates the illusion that you're mumbling, but you're actually giving enough to be able to, to have the production track be what goes in the final episode and not... Um, and not have to go in and loop it because looping rarely sounds as good as your natural voice. And that's kind of like you know being on stage. Like even if you're having an intimate, quiet scene, you need to remember to cheat yourself out. You need to put enough, you know, use your diaphragm enough to like send the words out there. And and there is you know sometimes people get a little too naturalistic uh, in their in, in their approach on camera. And it's 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 more subtle than stage, but it is definitely an acquired, uh, learnable skill. Awesome.
1: Uh, what's that? Uh, yeah, we've got a, co- a couple of great questions here. Um, this one comes from Michael for the entire panel. Is Michael Ganadri in the house? Hey, Michael, thanks for the question. Uh, so Michael asks, over the years, uh, many showrunners have fought to avoid the label science fiction. Do you guys feel a similar burden to avoid that label?
3: We're on the sci-fi network. (laughs) I figured. (laughs) I guess it would be a little douchey to sort of
2: uh, dodge that label. Although they they changed their name. They they they, they, they did, did, yes. They they sort of rebranded themselves, I think, which was sort of on this because of this, right? Didn't they? I don't know. They went from being sci-fi to
3: S-Y-F-Y. You can't trademark the generic term science fiction, but if um, it has a Y in it, then it's trademarked. So it's right. one of those
1: startup names where you just
2: add a Y where right, there right, should be an, a Y or an oh. R. Or, <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, I, I wonder if maybe the sort of spirit of the question was, are there negative connotations that come with the label of science fiction, and is that too limiting in in to some people?
0: Uh, it used to be at one point. Uh, I think right now some of the most uh, successful television shows and some of the most successful film franchises are speculative fiction which is just a fancier word for science fiction um certainly the advantage that science fiction has is it has an extremely extremely engaged fan base like people get really really passionate about their science fiction they take that shit really really seriously (laughs) and that's the kind of person you want uh, Watching your show because you want someone that's going to follow you. You know when you when you flip. You know when you, when you, when, you, when you when you're programmed on a different night every season. You want to know that your audience is going to follow you. You want to know that your audience is technically savvy enough to track you down wherever it is you happen to end up. And and that's and that's science fiction. I know that if, uh, if if a member of the Sci-Fi Network were here on this panel, um, you know uh, Michael, who's who's our, who's our, 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 our Motion was at sci-fi uh, he would say that sci-fi audience is uh, is comprised largely of uh, what they call igniters who are the people that they, they blog they log on to social media they set trends they establish what is cool and what is not cool to enjoy and they're a very uh, desirable fan base so if you're on ABC or one of the broadcast networks being called a genre show or a science fiction show limits your audience because you broadcast, but on basic cable, you, you narrowcast. You know, like, 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 like there's, there's a huge cultural impact that's been made by a show uh, like, like Better Call Saul, but I think if you actually look at the ratings, like it's not, you know, they're, they're a fraction of, it, it, it would be canceled if it were on uh, broadcast television. But the people who enjoy that show are a very special targeted demographic, which makes it a very attractive show. I think the same thing for, um, you know, for audiences of, of of science fiction and and what they call genre shows.
4: Cool. I want to add that you know, science fiction uh, traditionally, I mean, good science fiction really explores uh, politics and news and current topics and things like that in a way. It's uh, uh, you know, a metaphor for what we're going through now. So there's, there's a wide range, obviously, of programming on Sci-Fi Channel. And um, I, I do still get to, to, to actually select what I will work on for them. And when I see scripts as smart as Defiance, I'm all in. But you know, there's other stuff that I consider more kind of drive-in movies, and there's a place and a time for that. But uh, it's not something I'd want to spend a lot of time working on.
2: Since we're talking about, I don't know what you would call it, niche audiences or whatever, this is almost... Uh, I feel like a good time to loop back to the video game thing because you have... You, well, I have so many questions about this whole uh, marriage between the show and the, and, the, and the video game. First of all, we talked about it earlier, it's like the first time ever where a video game has informed uh, a show and vice versa. Um, do, are, I mean, do they have numbers on, are people playing the video game and watching the show? Or do you have separate audiences for the two? Are people paying close attention to the crossovers? Um, uh, Darren, do you and Todd write for the video game? Like, what is the what's the
0: relationship like between the two mediums? You're asking very intelligent questions that uh, I myself have, have have asked in the past, and the answer is uh, no. Curiously, there is no metric for the uh, for the for the Venn diagram intersection between people who are. You know, you remember that from like statistics, where you've got the these are people watching the TV show, this is people who are playing the game, and then the wedge in the middle of the people that are doing both. There is no metric to know who is doing both, um, and nobody cared to spend the money to find out for whatever reasons that elude me. Um, in term, in terms of the other part of it, which was which was the crossover, is um, we learned something very. Uh, very interesting, and I think that a lot of what we've learned on Defiance is going to be uh, probably very instructive, this experience will be very instructive the next time uh, I go to run a show that is a uh, a a, 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 a transmedia extravaganza, because we we learned a lot about what works and what does not work. And uh, one of the challenges was technology at this point is advancing so quickly that given the lead time that is required to cross over a television show which shoots really quickly like a television show you're you you know we, we have generally seven-day shoots um, so a director shows up seven days before the episode begins shooting and that's when the episode is really solidified as to what it's going to be and what we can a- afford for it to be and then that episode is shot in seven days and boom the director has gone and then we're dealing with footage and the footage that we have is, 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 a, is, a, is a fixed uh, quantity of stuff that has to be made into an episode a, an MMO video game is constantly changing, and it has to be planned a long, long time in advance. And sometimes they'll spend months and months planning something, and then they'll realize, oh, it slowed down our servers. Crap, what are we going to do about that? And what we discovered when, when, uh, when the Tryon game launched was we had a lot of very, very elaborate uh, crossovers planned. But as the game was going along, that it, it suddenly became that you couldn't... Originally, the game was just going to come out on PC. And then they discovered, oh, well, it wouldn't be competitive in the marketplace unless it was also available for the console games. So they had to add the console games. Now the problem with that is you can't make the same game for all three iterations. So they were making the version for the Xbox, the version for the PS3 and the version for and the version for the PC. That took up a lot of money, took up a lot of resources, and what we gradually discovered was a lot of the agreed upon crossovers we were we were setting up in the television show which had shot and long since wrapped, you know, months before and those were not able to be followed up in the video game and vice versa. So what we started doing was we started creating a because we shot Many months before the actual video game stuff would go live, is we started building in uh, Chinese menus of available options uh, for the for the people who did the game. So, for example, we said, okay, uh, we have a character Kenya uh, played by Mia Kirshner, and she's going to be, uh, you know, we created like a, a, a robot artificial version of her that did two episodes and left in season two. You're welcome to take her and and spin her off and do something with her if you wish because she's she now you now can take that character who is a big very beloved character in our show uh we would we we would say hey we're we're bringing uh the character from the video game varus who is a crime lord he's gonna he's gonna come into the show and he's gonna have an interaction with nolan if you want to follow up on that here are some ideas for what you can possibly follow up on and on the first page of every script we would have like a list of potential crossovers, um, and those would be approved by the network, and those would go to try on. Um, and to be honest, I, 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 haven't, I haven't checked in with the game in a while, so I'm not sure how many they've done. But uh, I think the other the other thing that I would I would do differently if I were doing this again would be to put one creative entity in charge of both the television side and the game side, with an equal Equity in, in, in both parts of it because on the television show our first priority was to make sure that our, we had a good TV show and that it got picked up by sci-fi the game's priority was to make sure that the game was working smoothly and that they were attracting people and they were coming up with a business model that you know kept them you know kept, kept them in business and there was no overarching, Mastermind, making sure that the, the that the multimedia franchise was, was in operation. So it was it was a it was, it was it was a challenge for a lot of those reasons. And I think that that uh, I think the the, the transmedia nature of it was successful, and it was innovative, and we did a lot of things really really well. There's a lot of things that I think we could have done you know we, we could have done better. But it's it's evolving still. It's, it's yeah. It's it's still so evolving, it's, and it's and it and it's still there. It's just it's not it's not as uh, it's not as ambitious as it was when we first when we first launched.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you say that the Xbox, PlayStation, and PC are all different? They're,
0: they're, they're the those? same essential game, but to make it work on each platform, you have to deal with it differently. Like for example, the PC. And again, I'm I'm a little bit out of my element, so I apologize if anything I'm saying is inaccurate. But uh, the PC has a lot more computing power. Uh, so, so you have to kind of dumb down the PC version of the game uh, in terms of resources to make sure that it looks uh, right. of a piece with the game that's on the, uh, on the two consoles, because they don't have the same computing power. Okay. and that, So that means that you have to, when you're looking at, okay, how are you rendering, and what are you doing, and, and what are your games, and how much how long does it take to download your patches, all these things that I don't really know a lot about. Uh, all of that has to be factored in, and it becomes just a lot more uh time intensive because people in your company have to be monitoring all that stuff and then keeping it up to date with the current patches wow.
2: so the way you tell it then <coughs> except for maybe characters that Darren is creating with you and the rest of the writers you, no one has direct sort of you 're not working on the on the video games brennan, yeah. Paul, okay
4: we did used to have uh, weekly conference calls and, and this preceded the production of the pilot, you know, mm-hmm. la- brainstorming sessions with the game people about potential opportunities from the game to the show and, and vice versa.
1: Wow. That just sounds so like, like a handful <laughs> to have all of that going on all at once. Uh, but very cool. So another question we have, uh, this comes from Aaron. Aaron, are you in the house? Aaron Braxton? Hey Aaron. Um, so Aaron asks, what advice would you give to aspiring writers who want to break into the industry without representation or industry referrals?
0: Get a camera, shoot your thing, and put it online. That's probably what I would do.
2: Wow. Darren, do you have anything you want to add to that?
3: Yeah, I, I think uh, one thing that I, that I tend to tell people is to not worry so much about the networking and the meeting people and to concentrate 90% of your energy and time on just on the writing part of it because we live in LA and your you know your next door neighbor's cousin is probably an agent or whatever. So <laughs> if, if your stuff is good, it's going to reach the audience because because we you know for for those of I'm talking to the live audience here And for those of you who are listening to the podcast who are anywhere else, you're an email away from somebody. And if your stuff is is really phenomenal, um, everybody who is trying to find the next great writer um, really wants to find them. So the fantastic work does find an audience. And so... um, I think that's that's my big message: is to really concentrate all your energy on um, on the work, um, and put you know put energy into the networking and the finding the agents and all that stuff. But most of it on the work.
2: Awesome, awesome, cool. Uh, Darren, uh, just tangentially on the same uh, topic: what, what why is it that you and Todd work as a, as, a, as a team as opposed to you working
3: alone or him working alone? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, now, um, we go way back, way, way back. We were friends in um, junior high school. So uh, it's, a, it's a very unique sort of writing partnership. Um, and you know sometimes writers will say do you recommend being in a writing partnership and then and, and you know I have to say honestly my writing partnership is very unique because we're really old buddies and we go way back and so try it um I think we were in a band you know like not, come on that's awesome you know we we were roommates for a while you know during college after college and um and uh we started writing together and in features Being um, writing partners is uh, a little bit more organic than it is in television, Um, but we've always been writing partners and uh, it's just sort of what we've done in our professional career for, you know, for a couple of decades, so, um, you know, that's what we, that's what we do. Um, I don't know if I answered the question exactly, but, you know, that... He start, He was writing, and he and I wasn't a writer at at the time. I was a musician, and um, he uh, he he came to me, and there was an idea he was working on. He's like, "Oh yeah, you had some ideas for this," and um, the next thing we knew, we were writing a script together, and so that's how it happened. Sounds like you, <laughs> me? Yeah, a musician who
2: is aspiring to get into writing. I don't know. Oh shucks. You're Um, (laughs) welcome. Awesome. Uh, Did you have another one you wanted to do? Uh, Yeah, I guess this could be for anyone. This comes from Mark Vashro on on Twitter. Uh, I guess any one of you or all of you could answer this question, because it might uh, have some good stories, although you told the story of the season 3 premiere. Uh, Favorite actor contribution and how it changed the production? Affected production. They didn't die in the snow. <laughs>
0: um, early on, this is going to be about uh, Jamie Murray, uh, Tony Curran, and Jesse Rath, who uh, they're they're sort of the nuclear family on our show. They're uh, they're they're castathans, uh, which are the white skinned aliens, and they. Uh, They come from a very uh, odd, uh, from human standards, uh, culture in which family baths are something that you do all the time, that uh, generally the marriages are open. Uh, Everyone, from what we've seen on the show, is uh, omnisexual. There's very sort of one of the things I really love about Defiance is the idea that any sort of uh, Gender discrepancy is 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 noteworthy is, is kind of an antiquated notion like really whether you know guys are attracted to guys Girls are attracted to girls or you know any combination of the two It's just kind of irrelevant on the show which is which I think it makes it actually a little utopian um, <laughs> but uh, Early on I think this was our second episode of the show we were trying to establish what the dynamics were and I really liked the idea of the Castathans having a relationship that would be very creepy and weird and peculiar to the viewing audience, but that was very honest and natural to them because our Earth 2013 audience viewing the show, 2012, whenever it aired, aired, uh, was was looking at things from a very different perspective and to always be reminding them that these are aliens. So it was a scene in the bathtub, and it was... uh, daytack and stama who the mom and the dad in the tub having a conversation and their son has just had his heart broken by his human girlfriend and mom gets out of the tub now cast women wear uh this bathing attire which is this incredibly skimpy sort of glued on beads that is probably more revealing than a bathing suit because you pretty much look naked and she kind of gets out and she comforts her son by giving him a big hug and a kiss and hugging him. And it's the weird notion of seeing this naked, beautiful woman embracing her son and holding. It just gave everyone the willies. And at the network, they just kind of, they, they were very disturbed by it. And they were like, we, we can't do that. And, and and I said, well, why, why can't they? They're aliens? It's because well, that's, that's, that's disgusting. It's incestuous. It's, what, what are we saying here? Well, we're, we're, we're saying that it's aliens. And. And racist. Mark, Mark Stern, Mark Stern, who was who was our boss, he was like, "Yeah, I buy that. That's. I think it's cool." And then, up, but 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 that was sort of like the first big battle of propriety uh, of, 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 of of propriety um, that we we won on the show. And from that point on, any idea of what are taboos kind of went out, kind of went out the window. And that really was because. Jamie Murray and Jesse Rath, who were in The Embrace, they were so brave and they were so committed and they played the moment so honestly and not creepy and and, and sexual. And Tony Curran, just there was a point where he like was sitting in the bath, naked in his bath, kind of looking up at his wife hugging the son. And he just had this kind of father's no best kind of like, (laughs) I've got a good family kind of like satisfied smile on his face, which was utterly weird and unnerving and and mind-blowing. But it... It it worked in the moment because they approached that really peculiar thing with incredible truth and honesty and integrity as as artists and it it made the whole thing work and it really, it showed the network what what the show could do in terms of uh, holding up a mirror to cultures and what we find right, wrong or indifferent.
1: I remember that scene, and I remember being like, "This is weird." Like, <laughs> like Jamie Murray, first of all, doesn't look old enough to be that kid's mom. Um, but also, like, yeah, it was kind of like a little awkward to watch. And and when you said when you cut when you cut to the father in the bath, just kind of like smugly being like, "This is my that's my boy," you know, it was kind of kind of awkward. But but the cool thing about science fiction shows is that you can just you can get away with that stuff, and you can sort of. Uh, uh, trigger in your viewer that reaction to sort of question why is, why is that weird? Like really why is that weird?
0: Yeah, that's, you know? so exact, it's, it's that's exactly fun, the purpose.
1: Is, yeah.
0: And anything, good speculative fiction can have characters behave in ways that you look at and you question and then you can sort of look at, oh wait do we do that in our actual world? And, and you can make statements that you couldn't possibly say if you were talking about, you know, you know Israel and Palestine. If you're talking about black and white, if you're talking about uh, you know I- Irish Catholics and Protestants, you know, th- thing, you know S- Sunni and Shia, like like you can you can talk about those things without actually talking about them because yeah. you're you're putting them into this alien context. And that's one of the things. Uh, you know, going back to the science fiction question, one of the things I really love about doing science fiction is the fact that you can really get into those things in a in a, in a, in a real way.
1: Yeah, totally. Um,
2: We unfortunately have to wrap it up. We're running out of time. Uh, Obviously we could sit and talk about how to make a TV show for days. Uh, I would love to end on this note, um, unless you have any other ideas, because I didn't run this by you. Uh And we're partners, me and you, buddy. Uh, I would like to just go down the line and just in a a couple of sentences, hear from each of you uh, what is the favorite part, what is your favorite part of your job? favorite thing about your job?
5: My favorite thing about my job is A, I have one. And B, it's um, extremely enriching. It's very challenging. I get to push myself as a songwriter, as a producer, as a performer on almost every track. And I find that as a collaborator, as we've mentioned many times, how fun it is to like workshop and woodshed things with everyone on the show, but Kevin's just awesome to work with. Um, I'll pitch him some wacky idea. He'll say, run with it. Maybe there'll be some revisions. Uh, A lot of times last season, it was just this golden, just like, we'd be like, hey, I'm going to write this wacky country song, or I'm going to write this wacky electro trap hip hop song, and he'd be like, this is awesome, and it's just like a very friendly... Fun working atmosphere, and you know, and 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 then ultimately the the show is so unique uh, for all the reasons aforementioned before, um, and it's just it's just extremely rewarding, and 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 just being a songwriter on a show at all is just I mean I can count that on one hand the number of times that's happened in the history of film and television, but yes, having a job, getting to write cool songs and hang out with cool fun people is. Uh, that's my favorite thing about the show.
4: Supervising the final audio mix is, is exhilarating and never gets old because it really represents everyone's work finally coming together and being the final product that you air, and that's a blast. And it's it's still an opportunity to kind of get in the sandbox with everyone and discuss new ideas, and it's it's amazing how much invention actually takes place on the mix stage. And Kevin will like a song, a cover song. There was this awesome... Uh, um, the four non-blondes, um, What's Up, What's up uh, last season, that Kevin loved so much that he decided to take it straight all the way through the main title. Just replace the main title theme with an extra 15 seconds of the song, and uh, the music editor got to work, and a few minutes later, we had something that was really unique and uh, great. And so it's it's exciting. It's cool.
3: Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, aside from working with a lot of really fantastic people, um, this show is an opportunity to you know, talk about as kevin had mentioned uh topics that you don't normally get to talk about and 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 todd and i haven't really had as much of an opportunity to write about you know but big ideas like you know why is humanity you know why do we have such a propensity for violence or you know what is uh you know uh, religious concepts uh, and um you know devotion to parents and how far that should go and what are we willing to do for our loved ones and do the ends justify the means and these sort of like big you know navel-gazy sort of topics you know mixed in with an action-adventure show with people dressed up as aliens like that's like a dream come true and I'm really you know, grateful to have had the opportunity
0: to do that. I guess for me I, I'm in a Unique situation on the show because I'm the only person uh, along with uh, my, my, my assistant uh, Amanda Alpert uh, who's there for all of the show. Like I'm there before the rioters are hired, I'm there pitching to the network, I'm there throughout the writing process because of the people here like <clears throat> Paul uh, doesn't actually start, clock in until until we've begun production and have dailies. You know, he, he's he's he, and he's free to be doing other jobs. Uh, Brendan, the same thing. Uh, Darren and Todd—they're there from the very beginning with me. But then once the show wraps, like we've we've now wrapped photography on season three, and they've 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 gone on and they're no no longer on on the season three defiance clock. But I stay on until the until the bitter end. And one of the things that I love the most, and I'm I also I, I spend a lot of time in Toronto, which is a whole other different bunch of artists and. I love sharing the work of one of our groups of artists with the other ones. Because it is such a pleasure to do a screening for our crew and our cast and all the people that were freezing their nuts off in in Toronto when they see what these guys have done with post-production and what the music sounds like and what the visual effects and the color correction, what the finished show looks like. It it, it was never what they were imagining and just saying like, look what what our artists here in Los Angeles have done. Having our writers looking at what we've written and what we put on the page when we see dailies for the first time. And just all of the, and, and doing the spotting sessions because, you know, what I love about having, uh, you know, Brendan and his brother and, you know, Daniel Coleman and and, and, and Jeff, our, our, our sound guys, and, you know, and Ren, our music editor, is uh, they're our first audience. They watch our first assemblies. And they're the first time that I get to see smart, cool nerds watching the show. <laughs> And I get to see if it works or not. And you know, when something really works, and, and if I can make like 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 Brendan and Bear jump out of their seats and go, "Motherfucker! Oh no!" <laughs> Those like,
5: words have never come out of my mouth.
0: Like 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 Paul and Paul and I are doing like little high fives because we're you know, and, and we'll always like when we know that a big thing is coming or a death or something really shocking, we'll both sort of lean and be looking to see what their reactions are, and and just that whole sharing of. The process with all the different people in, in this big, giant, like, you know, monolithic uh, Leviathan thing that's the show. I, I, I love being there to see all of it and share it with everyone else.
2: That's beautiful.
1: That's, uh, that's awesome. That's a hell of a note to end on. Yeah, seriously. Uh, wow. Well, thank you so much, guys. Really, really appreciate your time. Uh, it was a pleasure. <laughs>
0: yeah. Excellent uh, questions. Thank you. Thank you
2: all for coming, and for all the viewers watching at home. I'm not even really sure where that camera is, but thank you for tuning into the live stream. Uh, the actual episode will uh, go will be published on our feed next Tuesday, um, and we will see you all at the uh, at the after party. Come find one of us if you don't know where where that is or what it, what it's all about. Thank you, thank you guys. Oh. Thank you all for listening to episode 200. Thank you for all the support over the last five and a half years to get to this point. And thank you for listening. And a special shout out and thanks to all those who attended not only the live recording, but the after party. Today's episode of Inside Acting, as all episodes, was produced and co-hosted by myself, AJ Meyer, and of course, Trevor Algett. Jen Levin is our production coordinator. Gadali Gubrick is our marketing and web director. Jasmine Bristow is our director of public relations. And Deborah Smith is our community manager. Trevor Algat edited and mixed our episode today and composed our interview and theme music. You can sign up for our weekly email dispatch and listen to all of our recent episodes at our website, insideacting.net. You can also find us on iTunes and your five-star reviews are hugely appreciated. A special thanks to our sponsors, Rehearsal 2, Vodagogo.com, and the Headshot Truck. And thanks to you, our loyal listeners. If you love Inside Acting and you want to maximize its value in your life and career, you can sign up as a monthly member and get cool perks, like access to our membership message board, cool freebies, invites to exclusive member meetups, discounts on merchandise, and more. Just visit InsideActing.net and click on the Membership tab. And that's it for episode 200 of Inside Acting. Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, here's to the next 200.